Welcome, everybody, to Debt Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz. Want to welcome all of our viewers from around the world. Good evening, good morning, or good afternoon. If you are joining us for the first time and want more information about our show, please visit our website at debttalklive.com. Also, please feel free to visit any of our five social media streaming platforms to which this show airs simultaneously. That includes YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. How is everyone doing tonight? I want to welcome, of course, our great moderators, Singer Chick, Khaleesi, and Saz on the YouTube uh, side, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. And then, of course, we have Marie, who is handling Instagram all by her lonesome, you know, but... The people at uh, our viewers on Instagram have grown really attached to Marie. I mean, how can you not? She's a blonde, blue-eyed girl from California. <laughs> and she's great. And uh, I'm going to keep giving her shout-outs because she deserves them. Welcome to Mustafa, who's just joined us on Instagram. For Bree, Token2212 has just joined us. Welcome to CC Wheezy on YouTube. Our regular, of course, Lindsay Sparks. Uh, sniper number one is with us tonight again. Welcome, Sniper. Colette has joined us. Welcome to everybody. Uh, you know, I got to share this with you guys. Before I go live every night, you know, we all have our quirks. For me, my biggest fear is that there's a booger sticking out of my nose. I can't shake it. This is like our 270th episode. Uh, we're approaching a year doing this almost every day. And I have this weird, obsessive thing that just kicks in like 10 minutes before showtimes that there is a booger sticking out of my nose. Uh, just, you know, I have no qualms sharing this stuff with you guys. But uh, one day I'm going to come on here and I'm, my nose is going to be bleeding because I just make sure I blow my nose and wipe it. And one day I'm going to irritate it so bad, there's going to be blood gushing out of my nose. And if that happens uh, before, during the show, now you know why. <laughs> uh, Colette writes, you always look okay, Viz. I know, it's just this weird obsessive thing. You know, everybody has their own little quirks. And one of my quirks is that I'm going to go up live on the air and there's going to be this big giant booger sticking out of my nose. <laughs> anyway... All right, uh, you can tell it's, uh, what is it today, Thursday? Yeah, it's Thursday. The week is almost over. Uh, I hope everyone's enjoying their week. And before we continue, I want to let you guys know that we put up a great article that was written by our very own uh, Khaleesi on the Cecil Hotel. The Cecil Hotel is getting a lot of news lately, especially with the Netflix docu-series that was recently released. It's a four-part special centering on the Elisa Lam disappearance that happened back in 2013. She was missing for 19 days until she was ultimately discovered in the water tank on the rooftop of the hotel. With the lid closed on top of her, there was absolutely no evidence of foul play. Uh, of course, back then, every web sleuth around the world thought they were going to crack the case, but they were ignoring the evidence, and a whole bunch of wild conspiracy theories came about. But now, you know, 
seven years later, eight years later, people realized that it was an accidental death. It wasn't a suicide. Uh, the official autopsy report is accidental drowning with bipolar being a major contributing factor. Elisa Lamb was bipolar and she was not taking her medications. Um, the way they know this is uh, they looked at her pill bottle and on a prescription of 60 pills in the bottle, they found 70. So that's a very clear indication right there that she wasn't taking her bipolar meds as uh, she's supposed to. And, uh, you know, bipolar is something that should not be messed around with. Uh, I have family members who actually have bipolar and it's very serious. It's very serious. And if you miss your medications, it really can have some uh, really bad repercussions. But anyway, our very own Khaleesi wrote an article on the Cecil Hotel. It's live now on deadtalknews.com. If you guys want to read it, check it out. That is our, you know, media news outlet that goes with Dead Talk Live. Uh, go ahead and sign up for our newsletter. You'll get a summary every morning of all the stories that have been printed. And that's where we go ahead and make our announcements first off on all our upcoming guests. And speaking of upcoming guests, we remind you again that on Tuesday, we are airing at a special time of 7 p.m., with special guest Sean Roberts from the Resident Evil movies. Let's see, he appeared in Resident Evil Afterlife, Resident Evil The Final Chapter, and Resident Evil, I believe it's called Retribution. So he's appeared on three in three Resident Evil movies on top of a whole bunch more stuff. So you guys definitely want to tune in on Tuesday to see our interview with Sean Roberts. And we have a lot more interviews coming down the pipe. As, uh, as soon as they are confirmed, I will go ahead and share them with you guys. So definitely stay tuned to our show. Check out Dead Talk Live. And of course, check out, check out our new deadtalknews.com uh, site. I want to have all my bases covered. As you can see, we're streaming to five platforms. There's even a podcast version of this show that gets uploaded after the show ends every day. We have the website. We have the news site. So if I'm missing something, let me know. <laughs> anyway, uh, Lindsay Sparks read the article. She says it was great. It was very good. Hats off. Thank you again to Khaleesi for writing it. It was a great piece. And, uh, you know, when she approached me about writing it, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Because if she wasn't going to write a piece on the Cecil, I was going to do it. And for me, of course, the problem is always time and finding the right time to put a, a, a piece together that deserves to be written in the way that it's supposed to be written and given the due attention that it deserves. Welcome to Janie Joe from Canada on Instagram. Hey, Janie. Hope you're doing well, staying warm up there in Canada. It's good to see you back on our Instagram side. Uh, Khaleesi Wright, she loved doing it. Uh, Rick Grimes is with us on YouTube. Say, are we all excited for the new Walking Dead? Yes. And again, I have not yet seen the new episode. It's been available for me since Sunday, but I have not had a chance to see it. I'm hoping tomorrow, Friday, I will 
be able to sit down and watch the new Walking Dead episode with my son, but let's see how it goes. Hopefully. I'm definitely going to watch it before Sunday. That's that's a definite. I'm hoping it's tomorrow, but we'll see. Uh, let's see. I'm just reading through your guys' chats. Um, Sniper says he's hungry. He'll be right back. That's that's fine, Sniper. Lindsay Sparks. It is so cold here in Canada. Yeah, I bet it is. Blessed me on Instagram writes, it was awesome. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, I'm hearing it was a great episode, and I cannot wait to watch it. Like I said... Hopefully, I'll watch it by tomorrow. So, let's get on with some news, okay? Not a big news day, but there is, as always, people will always find stuff to write about. The Walking Dead boss teases a lot of new characters in Season 11. Makes sense, right? We're meeting a whole brand new community that is 50,000 strong in the Commonwealth. So, of course, we're going to meet a lot of new characters, the Walking Dead will be back on our screens in a matter of days for an extended season 10. Ahead of The Walking Dead's return this weekend, series boss Angela Kang spoke to Digital Spy and other media about the expansion of The Walking Dead world and what that means for the survivors. Kang explained that while there won't be a lot of new faces in the upcoming six episodes, okay, this is for season 11 where we actually really get into the Commonwealth. Uh, there will be some very significant ones in the upcoming season 11, which is the series final season. There will be a lot more story that comes in season 11, where we'll meet a lot of new characters, but this will start the train rolling. I think she means about the six upcoming episodes. The world of our survivors is continuing to expand, as they're running into new groups and new survivors. And if you guys have really paid attention, throughout the whole course of The Walking Dead, 10 plus years, uh, the world seemed very, very small right after the apocalypse, uh, especially in their time while they were in Georgia. Uh, but when they moved to Virginia, they very slowly, with the introduction, you know, Alexandria, Hilltop, Oceanside, Kingdom, and they've met a lot more people, uh, you know, as the years went on. All of a sudden, we do that big time jump after Rick disappeared, and we look at Alexandria. It is uh, prospering, uh, you know, a self-sustaining community all on its own. And if you pay attention, the population in Alexandria has has boomed. Yeah, we never actually get to see these people for more than just background passing, you know, characters. But the population of Alexandria has just exploded after that six-year time jump they did with uh, Rick's disappearance. As for what kind of roles these mysterious new characters might play... Kang added, our survivors trying to figure out what those relationships are going to be, whether they are an ally or a foe. Production for season 11 began earlier this month uh, with the Twitter uh, tweet by uh, Kevin uh, Dydolt, sorry, Dybolt. I keep butchering people's last names. Uh, he announced it earlier this month on his tweet. 
that production is well underway for season 11 and as predicted they are keeping what they're keeping everybody on the set uh because the world we live in is so unpredictable right now with covid running rampant if everybody is there assembled after the six episodes were done filming they just went straight into season 11 and that is true for fear the walking dead as well as soon as they were done filming season six they went straight into shooting season seven of fear the walking dead so makes total sense tonight is thursday as uh i see you guys are talking in the chats thursday means we have a new episode of clarice and i am really in love with that show i cannot watch i will definitely watch that tonight after uh we're done with our episode here uh rebecca breeds who plays clarice man i gotta give her props i don't know how long of a process the casting of a character like clarice starling took but they nailed it they nailed it and rebecca breeds who plays clarice on the cbs show clarice perfect perfect casting she is i mean the perfect person to play Clary Starling. And then, of course, we have Michael Cudlitz, uh, who, uh, you know, is her boss, technically, in the VICAP FBI team. They have a very, you know, you know, right now it's a tenuous relationship. Uh, he doesn't really trust her. She doesn't trust anybody. Uh, it's very hard for her to build relationships. So, but as we saw with uh, episode two last week, and uh, what Clarice did to uh, calm a siege. I don't want to spoil it for you guys who haven't watched it yet. But you can see the ice is starting to thaw between those two characters. So Michael Cudlitz, who is, of course, played Abraham on The Walking Dead, is brilliant in uh, uh, playing his role as Krendler. Uh, who, like I said, is Clarice's boss. Beautiful matchup. Those two definitely have a chemistry on the screen together. And when I say chemistry, I don't mean a romantic chemistry. They just really play well off each other. So that's part of what makes it, you know, so amazing. And just think of how hard those casting directors, the kind of job they had to do to cast the role of Clarice Starling who was first seen on the screen by Jodie Foster, who did an amazing job. She won an Oscar for the role. And now you want to bring this to the TV and you got to find somebody who is going to be worthy of what Jodie Foster brought to us in Silence of the Lambs. But anyway, in my opinion, they nailed it. Nailed it. Uh... So let's see, Bless Me writes, new episodes of The Walking Dead is on AMC Plus starting today. Actually, Bless Me, that new episode of The Walking Dead has been on AMC Plus since this past Sunday. Uh, starting next, oh, you're talking about episode two. That's right. Episode two is actually available uh, as of today on AMC Plus. So, oh my God, that means I have to watch two episodes. Before Sunday. Uh, no, wait. No, I am completely wrong. That Your message got me completely screwed up. 
sorry, it's episode two, or depending on whatever episode you want to call it, technically, the first episode is episode 17. That's been available since Sunday. Episode 18, or two of the bonus six, is not going to be available till one week from today. So, I'm sorry, bless me, your your message there got me a little twisted and screwed up. Uh, But yeah, the first episode has been available since this past Sunday. So, anyway, let's keep on moving along. Uh, The Walking Dead is back. These new episodes will change you. Just, you know, if you think summer is too long till post-COVID normally, then spare a thought for The Walking Dead fans. They've been patiently awaiting the end of their own apocalypse since 2010. But as the zombie epic enters its 11th year on our screens, we can finally pencil in a date for its climax. Doesn't seem like this is anything new here, stuff that we already know. Alright, next on the list, the five best horror movies released in February, and the five worst. The beginning of the new year is the time for rejoicing, new beginnings, pursuing new goals, and adhering to new resolutions. Along with that, it's also a time of extreme anticipation, especially for cinephiles. Not only do they have the Oscars to look forward to, but they have to patiently skim through the annual sludge of low-quality horror movies that are purposely saved for the first two months of the year. Ouch! Sludge of low-quality horror movies. That's a little bit severe. There are, however, some exceptions to this, along with all the not-so-great horror movies that have premiered during the annual dump. That is February. There have been a few horror epics that have given February a slight better reputation. Number 10, best, Get Out, February 24th, 2017, and I have to admit, I have not watched this yet. This one needs no introduction. Get Out cleverly combines satire with horror that not only terrifies viewers, but also leaves them with several thought-provoking questions surrounding race and identity, not to mention it's among the few horror movies that only get better every time you watch them. Directed by Jordan Pele, the film stars Daniel Kaluuya as Chris, an African-American man who decides to visit the Caucasian family of his girlfriend. Although they warm up to him in no time, he soon realizes there's a lot more to them than meets the eye. Alright, worst, The Cloverfield Paradox. I like this movie. I don't know if it's just me, but I like The Cloverfield Paradox. Uh, I like getting an explanation of how the Cloverfield monster all of a sudden appears in the middle of Manhattan. (laughs) And he knocks the head off the the Statue of Liberty. The first two Cloverfield movies had two different tones, and one could hardly draw any parallels between them. But the Cloverfield Paradox attempts to somehow tie all the movies together by using complex sci-fi gimmicks. Despite being well-intended, it falls flat compared to the ominous atmosphere of 10 Cloverfield Lane 
and the thrilling monstrous drama of the first film. Still, anyone who has watched the first two films might as well add this one to their watch list. Now that a new Cloverfield movie is underway, watching all the films in the franchise might come in handy. I totally don't agree with them. Don't pay too much attention to that. I liked the Cloverfield Paradox. I really did. Uh, It gave us an explanation on how the monster ended up on Earth. Uh, It gives an explanation of time, space, uh, multiverse theories, and how the monster is from a parallel universe and gets transported into our universe right in the middle of Manhattan. (laughs) Anyway, number eight, Best. Ah, I love this movie. And we just had uh, one of the stars from it on here this past Monday, The Fog. February 1st, 1980. Uh, The Fog follows a unique, albeit muddled, narrative that is only used for instilling shock in viewers. It focuses on the town of Antonio Bay, which is preparing to celebrate its 100th anniversary, but soon the dead sailors who suffered because of the brutal crimes of the founders of the town rise from a thick fog that ascends from the sea. I love this movie. The remake sucked. I'm sorry, I'm going to keep saying that over and over again. Uh, The Fog was amazing. Uh, Great cast, Jamie Lee Curtis, Adrian Barbeau, Tom Atkins, Nancy Loomis, who's now Nancy Kerr. Uh, It just goes on and on and on. And of course, it's a John Carpenter film. So... Amazing movie. Let's see what's next on the list. This is one of the worst, they say. Devil's Pass, February 28th, 2013. Directed by Rennie Harlan from Deep Blue Sea. Devil's Pass is a found footage horror film loosely inspired by a real-life skiing incident known as the Daytalov Pass Incident. It follows the footsteps of a film crew that attempts to unravel the mysterious doom that befell upon nine skiers. Number six is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, February 5th, 1956. As as typical as it may seem from its title, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is far from being a generic horror film. Even after 60 years since its release, its allegorical Cold War paranoia paranoia remains as thrilling as ever. And this was also remade, I believe, in the 80s. It was remade again. Uh, Both the original and the remake are amazing. In fact, I believe the remake uh, back in the 80s got better reviews. I don't know trying to jog my memory here it's kind of hard to remember but either way the remake was amazing as well number five worst rings yeah the first installment of the ring series easily ranks amongst the best j horror movie adaptations however its sequels especially the third installment have received relatively subpar reviews from critics and viewers alike 
According to many, let alone being memorable, Rings is replete with horror cliches, lousy plot points, and poor performances. I'm not a big fan of the Rings either. All right, number four on the list, the best in the mouth of madness. February 3rd, 1995, often referred to as an example of Lovecraftian horror in the mouth of madness is among John Carpenter's most underrated movies. Unofficially, it is also the third installment of Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy, which includes cult classics like The Thing and Prince of Darkness. Oh, you know, Prince of Darkness is another movie that I feel, for some reason, a lot of people, especially critics, I have not talked to a fan who did, has not, who did not like Prince of Darkness. I love Prince of Darkness. Uh, it actually is extremely scary, and it's one of the movies to this day I can just keep watching over and over again, and it will always have the same scare factor. Uh, so if you guys have not watched Prince of Darkness, you gotta watch it. It's an amazing story, amazing acting. It's a Carpenter film, and I don't know what else to say. It's just classic. It's a classic. In my mind, it's just an absolute classic. All right, number three, worst, Demonic, February 12th, 2015, written by James Wan, who has gone on to do some great paranormal films. Demonic is a whodunit horror thriller where a psychologist and a police officer join forces to investigate the mysterious deaths of five ghost summoners. Because it uses many hackneyed tropes and features arch sorry, archetypal teenagers attempting a seance, it makes up for a fun sleepover movie. However, for those who are looking for some serious blood-curdling horror, Demonic's predictable, predictable premise is a complete letdown. It's an entertaining film. It's not, you know, that bad. It's a, actually for a February movie, it's not bad at all. So I would recommend you guys watch it. Number two, a lot of people forget that Silence of the Lambs uh, did not come out during, you know, the movie's big release uh, season, which of course starts in May, uh, and the summer season is the big season for all the big budget films, but Silence of the Lambs came out on Valentine's Day, 1991. It is surprising how a classic like Silence of the Lambs premiered in what is known as the dump month of cinema. These guys really don't like the month of February. Based on Thomas Harris's character Hannibal Lecter, the Silence of the Lambs is among the very few movies that have won the Big Five Academy Awards. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay. That's why I said casting Clarice must have been a very difficult task. Although the movie starts slow, takes its time to find its feet, it keeps viewers at the edge of their seats with Hannibal the Cannibal's intelligent yet disturbing gimmicks. And even though Silence of the Lambs is not the first movie 
where the character of Hannibal Lecter is portrayed on the screen. There are movies before that. Uh, Man Hunter, I think it's what it's called, is one of them that comes to mind. And then we all know the movies that have come afterwards, as well as TV shows. The sequel to Silence of the Lambs is Hannibal, which, by the way, if you're going to watch Clarice on CBS, Hannibal, uh, the story that was used in the sequel for Silence of the Lambs, which is called Hannibal, has not yet happened or is not going to happen. Clarice, CBS Clarice on TV right now, takes place uh, a year after Silence of the Lambs. The events that happened in the Hannibal movie have not yet occurred or are not going to occur. And then, of course, we have the TV show Hannibal, which was absolutely phenomenal, and Clarice is going the same route as well. Number one, worst, The Messengers, February 2nd, 2007. Starring Kristen Stewart, The Messenger only recycles some of the most generic horror tropes and heavily relies on cheap jump scares. It has revenge-seeking apparitions, a haunted farmhouse, a troubled family, and almost everything else most horror fans have seen before. For anyone seeking a quick horror fix, this one perfectly fits the bill. But for others, there's a whole catalog of better haunted house flicks. And if you're like me, you guys know I love the paranormal subgenre. And when I do have the time at night to sit on my couch and watch a movie, I always go seeking for a new paranormal horror movie to watch. I don't care, you know, I love the independent films. I think there's some great stories out there. It's just, I think I've seen them all. <laughs> uh, Khaleesi, Red Dragon, of course, Red Dragon. Uh, Red Dragon uh, was done with Ed Norton after Silence of the Lambs was released. But it's a prequel uh, to Silence of the Lambs. And it's funny, The one of the very last scenes in Red Dragon is uh, Hannibal Lecter, who is again played by Anthony Hopkins, being told that there's an FBI agent uh, there to see him. And uh, that FBI agent is Clarice Starling. So they immediately tie Red Dragon straight into the Silence of the Lambs. Colette writes, I enjoyed The Entity. That is a great movie. Uh, Colette loves vampire films. The Brides and Van Helsing's were scary. I love vampire films as well, but I will not just watch any vampire film just because they're vampires, as opposed to my love for the paranormal subgenre. For I love vampire movies as well, but they're going to have to be something special for them to grab my attention and actually sit down and watch them. So, the the horror movie subgenre that has really gone to the wayside uh, because it was just so overdone back in the 80s and it has yet to make a comeback is the good old slasher films. Uh, the slasher films that we get today is basically, you know, the Halloween movies and Michael Myers, who will never, those movies will never get old. They, you know, the first one came out in 1978. It's been like 40 plus years. 
and they're just going to keep on going. As long as Michael Myers keeps bringing in money, Halloween movies are still going to be made. And even though the we already got Halloween 2018, Halloween Kills was supposed to come out last October. It's been pushed back to this October. Hopefully it will come out this October. And then there's a third one coming out in 2022 with the title of Halloween Ends. And believe me, it's even though the title says Halloween Ends, it is by no means going to be the last movie where you're going to see Michael Myers. There might be a time gap between Halloween Ends until we get another Michael Myers flick. But trust me, there are going to be more Michael Myers flicks. Just like Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th Part 4 was called The Final Chapter. And we had Tom Savini on the show explaining how he created Jason, our first ever glimpse of young Jason at the end of the first movie when he jumps out of the lake to drag down Alice. Uh, so he gave us our first glimpse of Jason Voorhees and they brought him back for Friday the 13th Part 4, which also had the title The Final Chapter. They brought him back specifically to give a clear death to Jason Voorhees. And he delivered with Friday the 13th, the final chapter. That's part four. So they tried to go a different route with Friday the 13th, part five. And uh, they brought in a different killer who was pretending to be Jason. But it was a different killer. It was actually a paramedic. Uh, fell flat. Completely flat on its face. So, when Friday the 13th, Part 6, they revive Jason from the grave, literally, Frankenstein style. You know, Tommy from Part 4 comes back completely traumatized by what uh, Jason did to him as a kid. Uh, digs up his grave. Jason is dead. I mean, he is dead. For some reason, Tommy freaks out over his grave, pulls out a, a gate. Uh, sorry, a spear from one of the gates that are falling apart around the cemetery. For some reason, he decides to repeatedly stab a dead body. And of course, wouldn't you know it, while he's doing that, a lightning storm kicks up. A lightning bolt hits the pole that is directly plunged into the dead Jason Voorhees. And just like that, you know, very Frankenstein-esque, Jason Voorhees has been brought back to life. And he had a journey. He visited Manhattan and finally ended up in space. Yeah, they should have left it at part four. Anyway, uh, I hope you got. I hope I haven't lost you guys in that little rant there. Welcome to Mimi, who is waving at us on Instagram. Sandra Carroll is uh, with us. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. You, Sandra lost her dog today. I'm so sorry for your loss, Sandra. I know that's very tough. Uh, you know, I know how hard it is. I, we have a dog and, you know, if you have a dog, it really is a part of your family. There's no other way to describe it. So I'm very sorry for your loss. Janie Joe is giving us love hearts. Uh, Ronaldo is uh, giving us a thumbs up. Cat is also giving us a thumbs up. Welcome to all you guys on Instagram. Khaleesi writes, and Jason fought Freddy. Oh yeah, they were not going to pass up that opportunity. So here's another article. Uh, I'm just briefly going to touch on this. There's a new 
movie coming out that's getting a lot of attention. It's called The Vigil. And uh, this movie is getting attention because it's a Jewish horror movie. And uh, the media seems to be intrigued for some reason because this is a Jewish horror movie. Personally, I never thought about this before, but I guess they are right. You never really hear a lot about Jewish horror movies, but this one is coming out and it's getting some pretty good reviews. So here's the uh, one of the people involved with the movie, the title of this article, Why Jewish Horror Movies Aren't Really a Thing, According to the Vigil Director. When it comes to religion and horror films, Christianity unquestionably has the market cornered. From demonic hauntings to exorcisms to every vampire movie where a cross is used to ward off a monster. There is no denying the link between the faith and the genre. But have you ever wondered why Jewish horror movies aren't really a thing? And until this article, no, I have not. Um, the Sam Raimi produced 2012 feature, The Possession. Uh, that's a movie with J.D. Morgan. J.D. Morgan is in The Possession from 2012. It's, uh, it, it sort of mimics the real-life story of the Dybbuk box. But anyway, uh, The Possession, which has a Dybbuk box... At the center of its plot is certainly an example, and I would personally make an argument and have that Joel and Ethan Cohen's A Serious Man also fits the bill, but it's not easy to find much beyond that, particularly in modern cinema. That being said, the canon, uh, sorry, the canon is actually expanding this week with the release of Keith Thomas's The Vigil. And when I had the chance to interview the writer-director last week, I took the opportunity to get his thoughts why there is so little Judaism-inspired horror in cinema. As Thomas, as Thomas explained, a big part of the reason has to do with Jewish mythology, particularly as it compares to Christianity. The faith does not include elements like hell, Satan, and demons, and those are things that scary movies can easily reach us, reach to, for a kind of veracity multitude. There are some elements of the religion that have traditional horror vibes, and The Vigil is a film that takes advantage of one. But mostly there are just isn't a great deal of material to mine, said Thomas. His quote is, I think largely it's because... Certainly, the larger Jewish community, the more secular Jewish community, just isn't superstitious to a large part. I think that's a piece of it. And the other thing is Judaism doesn't have the sort of hell and devil that Christianity does in terms of this idea of demons being sent by the devil as his emissaries into the world to harvest souls. It doesn't exist in Judaism. I think it did to a certain extent a long, long time ago. And that's kind of where I pulled the stuff out for the vigil. But yeah, you just don't see it as much. You get dibbics. Uh, a dibbic is basically the Jewish term of a demon 
or bad spirit. Like bad ghosts and then golems. And that's pretty much been the extent. For his directorial debut, Keith Thomas most definitely found an aspect of Jewish faith with a high creepiness factor. The Vigil tells a story of a shamer, a person who is hired to serve as a guardian for a person between the time that they die and are buried as a means of comforting the spirit that remains. In this specific case, the shamer in question is a young man named Yaakov, played by Dave Davis, who is still recovering from a traumatic event involving his younger brother. Needing the money to pay for his medication, he agrees to spend the night watching over a deceased man. But what he is horrified is to discover that there is an entity existing in the house that not only threatens the spirit of the dead man, but also his life and future. I love it. I mean, I haven't seen the movie yet, but that's a plot line that's right down my alley. Uh, so without giving too much away, the entity in question is taken straight from Jewish mythology. But more to the point, Keith Thomas was actually shocked in the making of the vigil that nobody had considered making a horror film about a shamer before. Really, anything dealing with being close to death is inherently disturbing, so you'd think that crafting a narrative around the practice would have been explored before. But Thomas found that not to be the case when the movies was coming when the movie was coming together, said the filmmaker. It was really weird for me when I kind of hit upon the idea of this shamer watching the body. That's a perfect setup for a horror film. It was kind of crazy that no one had made one yet because that was rich with possibilities. I want to see when this thing is coming out. He also goes on to say there's a lot of trauma there and it's definitely something that I was mining for the vigil and was touching upon. Uh, as it developed, that became a very clear theme in terms of the community and why the community is as insular as it is. It was like, well, there is this history, and then just kind of reading back in my own family affected by the Holocaust and pogroms before that, and the whole reason people fled to the United States. It does feel like a very rich vein and I'm not sure it's interesting because a lot of horror films are directed by Jewish filmmakers, but they're not necessarily digging into Jewish kind of concepts or ideas or mythology for those films. So, very, very interesting take right there. I want to see when this is coming out. And of course, I don't tell you. Uh, the Vigil is definitely a film that could open eyes to the potential and is just by itself an exciting title for genre fans. The movie, which co-stars Menash Lustig, Malky Goldman, Lynn Cohen, and Fred Melamed, opens in limited theatrical release and on demand this Friday, which is tomorrow, and is a title definitely worth hunting down. I'm going to watch that. So, just to let you guys know, just the plot line sounds fascinating. I'm glad that they're touching uh, on this. And it is surprising 
like he stated, this has never been thought of or done before. So it sounds like a very interesting concept, and I will definitely be watching that. Sandra Carroll has to go. Sandra, uh, you're, you're in our thoughts. Uh, go have a good night. I hope you start feeling better soon, and uh, we'll see you again. Uh, Danielson is also with us on Instagram saying good morning. Hello, Danielson1102 on Instagram. I'm looking at the time here. We're almost, of course, reaching the end. Uh, let's see. Just looking through some of these things. If you guys are wrong turn uh, fans, there is a seventh wrong turn movie coming out. It's just one of those cult franchises that has a very devoted following. And, uh, of course, it takes place in the uh, Appalachian Territory, a.k.a. West Virginia, or somewhere in or around West Virginia. Uh, so, if you guys are fans of the Wrong Turn franchise and don't know yet, there is a seventh Wrong Turn film coming out. Alright, so, today, I thought it would be great to look over some stuff involving creepy kids, or evil kids. Uh, can you guys think of a movie where just immediately, you know, evil kid, creepy looking kid, and which kid comes to your mind first? For me, no argument, it's the kid who played Damien in the very first Omen movie. Uh, cute as hell, little boy, but perfect casting to play the Antichrist. <laughs> uh, that, to me, is a creepy kid. And we have seen our share of creepy kids, uh, so many of them throughout the years. Khaleesi writes the, twin, the twins in The Shining. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Those twins gave people nightmares and still do give people nightmares to this day. Uh, Colette writes Reagan. Ah, I'm assuming you mean Linda Blair from The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah. When she was all done up in that demonic makeup, uh, I don't even think creepy is a good enough word uh, for what Linda Blair looked like uh, in The Exorcist. So, I, of course, with our uh, great videos from our friends over at Watch Mojo, they put together several videos, actually, but I picked one of some of the creepiest kids we have seen on film and television throughout the years so let's go ahead and check this out let me bring it up and make sure the sound is set and let's go ahead and watch it don't let their age fool you these kids know their craft welcome to watch mojo and today we're counting down our picks for the top 10 best child actor performances in horror or mark so violent, so disturbed. Before we begin, we publish you new content every day. So be sure to subscribe to our channel and ring the bell to get notified about our latest videos. For this list, we're looking at the most impressive and memorable performances by child actors in horror films, including sci-fi horror and psychological thrillers. As for the age range, we're being flexible. So as long as they haven't reached their late girl. teens yet, they will be considered. But young 20-somethings playing high schoolers need not apply. Will these make the Babadook go away? I think so, but you have to promise me not to mention it again. I promise to protect you if you promise to protect me. Number 10, Isabel Furman as Esther, Orphan. 
My name is Esther. Orphan. Oh What's my yours? god, that was Though so this good. supernatural horror film received mixed reviews, its at times generic scares and formulaic plot are saved by one thing, Isabel Furman's performance. As Esther, a nine-year-old child adopted by the Coleman family, Furman is absolutely captivating. She's sweet and charismatic one moment, but capable of turning into a menacing and volatile little creature the next. Many critics pointed Next to Furman's Vera performance Formiga, as a highlight way, of the film, the comparing it to some mind. other child horror icons that we'll be talking about later in this list. If you skipped this film when it came out in 2009, give it a try. Esther makes it worth a watch. You took your family for granted. What do you mean? What are you going to do? I'm a big Vera Farmiga fan. Number nine, I love Patty her. McCormick is Rhoda Penmark, The Bad Seed. Why should I feel sorry? The Bad Seed is another thing that's been redone many times The performances that Isabel Furman's Esther drew comparisons to, this is one of them. It might the be last one that I this remember, 1956 I think was psychological like horror 90s. thriller managed to get under the skin like of viewers with the precision of a mini-series. Eight-year-old Rhoda Penmark is the apple of her parents' eye. Unfortunately, when a schoolmate of Rhoda's dies mysteriously, Rhoda's behavior, both past and present, comes under scrutiny. Promise me you won't tell anyone what you've told me, do you understand? Why would I tell and get killed? Patty McCormick commands the screen as young Rhoda, and as old family secrets are revealed, she unravels her character's true nature in delightfully twisted fashion. Rarely has a child so convincingly conveyed pure evil. If you tell lies like that, you won't go to heaven when you die. Number eight, Lena Leanderson as Ellie, let the right one in. Every now and then, a film comes along that's hard to pin down, a movie truly unlike any other. This 2008 Swedish romantic horror is just such a film, blurring the lines between genres in ways that make any sort of categorization feel inaccurate. And at the very heart of this critically acclaimed movie is the undead vampire Ellie, as played by Lena Leanderson. I've not heard of this. A relative unknown at the time, Leanderson landed the role of Ellie after applying online. Only 11 when cast, she would go on to be nominated for and win numerous awards for the performance, which was praised as being nuanced, compelling, and complex beyond her years. There you go. You guys gotta go for it if you feel... Number 7. Millie Shapiro as Charlie Graham, Hereditary. Who's gonna take care of me? Folks, we would like she to officially a welcome a new addition to the Horror Hall of Fame, Millie Shapiro. Hereditary was Shapiro's first feature film, her she past was experience amazing. having been on the stage. Suffice it to say, she made a massive first impression. Hereditary has been called one of the scariest films in recent years, if not all time, and it eschews the cheap jump scares so common in contemporary horror. In the film, Shapiro plays 13-year-old Charlie Graham, and while we don't want to give too much away, let's just say that Shapiro's performance will burn itself into your memory in a way that won't soon fade. We've we talked cannot about wait Hereditary to see what she does a lot, next. and it's a great film. I mean, not the best horror movie of all time, but... Number it's, 6, it's Heather O'Rourke as Carol Ann Freeling, Poltergeist. It's just so heartbreaking what happened to her, I'm Hard sorry. Hard as it might be to believe, Steven Spielberg originally wrote the screenplay for Poltergeist as a Close Encounters of the Third Kind for sequel those of you that entitled know, Night Skies. Though that surely would have been interesting, after, we're like, glad the, the director Toby Hooper suggested movie. it be reworked as a supernatural and tale. We can't so imagine sad. Heather O'Rourke's performance being nearly as compelling in a sci-fi context. In the film, O'Rourke plays Carol Ann the young daughter and first member of the Freeling family to sense the presence of spirits in their house. They're here. They're here. Her 
her performance manages to be both endearing and deeply unnerving as needed. Even when she's trapped on the other side of the portal, her voice acting is chill-inducing. Number 5. The Entire Child Cast It I saw something too. Rarely has such a memorable cast of child actors been assembled on the big screen. With their respective performances in this 2017 adaptation, Jaden Lieberher, Sophia Lillis, Finn Wolfhard, Jeremy Ray Taylor, Jack Dylan Grazer, Chosen Jacobs, and Wyatt Olaf arguably earned themselves a spot alongside the great child casts to come before them, like that of The Goonies and Stand By Me. What makes the collective performance by this young ensemble so memorable is that each of their characters stands out as unique and fully fleshed out. We as viewers believe in this group of friends. And while good screenwriting helps that along, it's ultimately their performances that make us root for the Losers Club. If it isn't dead, if it ever comes back, we'll come back too. Number 4. Harvey Spencer Stevens as Damian Thorne, The Omen. There you go! I called it! For me, if there's a one. child in film that makes us rethink having kids, second only to Rosemary's titular baby Adrian, it's Damien from The Omen. Totally Directed creepy. by Richard Donner, yes, the man who gave us Superman just two years later, The Omen tells the story of Damien, a young boy being raised by adoptive parents who don't realize he is in fact the son of Satan. And also After the Harvey mother Stevens doesn't, doesn't know that it's an adopted dialogue, child, but that's what makes his performance she all the more She thinks it's her impressive. son. He manages to convey evil and menace with his every movement and stare. The performance earned him a Golden Globe nomination for Best Acting Debut in a Motion Picture Male. He was brilliant. 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 I love this movie. Number 3. Danny Lloyd as Danny Torrance, oh, the, Shining. the Shining. Danny's not here, Mrs. Torrance. Stanley Kubrick's 1980 adaptation of Stephen King's novel was slow to get the credit it deserved. Polarizing though it was at there the time are, of its release, it is regarded today as a masterpiece of the genre. And it's safe to say that the performances of its cast played no small part in establishing that legacy. While Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall both turn in performances of a lifetime, it would be criminal to overlook the performance of young Danny Lloyd, Very who was great. just six years old at the Red time of rum. filming. Red, Red rum. rum! Red rum! Red rum! Red rum! Red rum! He not only nailed the emotional experience Danny Torrance goes through with subtlety and nuance, but seriously got under our skin voicing Tony, his imaginary friend. Remember what Mr. Howard said? One of said. Jack Nicholson's best films. And it's trust me, he has like a long list. It's just like pictures Number 2. Haley Joel Osment as Cole Sear, The Sixth Sense. I see dead people. I see dead people. It's been estimated that roughly 45% of Americans believe in ghosts. After seeing M. Night Shyamalan's breakout film, however, we suspect that pretty much every single person who left the theater kept all the lights on of Americans, but about 60% of the world a population. A terrifying supernatural horror film, The Sixth Sense hit us with a variety of disturbing spirits, made even scarier because we were seeing them through the eyes of this Welcome young boy. On Sometimes you feel it inside, like you're falling down real fast, but you're really just standing still. As Cole Sear, Haley Joel Osment Bruce made Willis us believe in also, every single I mean, he ghost he encountered, and we shared in his care. Deserved, but he was Unsurprisingly, he was nominated well. for both a Golden Globe and an Academy Award. You don't associate Bruce Willis with horror films, but he was just Before amazing. Before we unveil our number one pick, here are some honorable mentions. Why'd you bring the suitcase? Aren't you taking me home? <laughs> I think they should have deserved more than just an honorable mention. From Pet Cemetery. 
when he actually came back from the dead, I mean, talk about creepy. Number one, Linda Blair as Reagan McNeil, the exorcist. He said Reagan earlier. Captain, how did that isn't very nice. Well, maybe. You got the number this one spot. This 1973 classic is counted among the scariest, who said, who said greatest, Ray? and Colette. most influential films. Collette, you still with us? But it's hard to imagine yeah, you it having the it same Reagan legacy had it not been the for the scene-stealing performance of Linda Blair. Sure, she had plenty of help from the makeup department, as well as the demonic overdubbing of Mercedes McCambridge. But all these years later, it's ultimately Blair's performance that still haunts us. Where's Reagan? In here with us. Many directors approached oh, for the project great, were great, apparently great scared film. off. Uh, any one of those could have been number one. Uh, yeah, great list, great list. And there are more that, you know, there's just so many of them that never made it. How many of you guys seen Children of the Corn? The 1980s film. Uh, that's another Stephen King novel, I believe. Uh, Children of the Corn, the first one, was amazing. And it's just full of uh, kids, young teens that basically are murderers, turn into murderers and murder all the adults in the town. Anyway, guys, we are out of time. And Singer Check, you are absolutely right. This one hour just flies by. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys. I'll be back on the air again with you tomorrow night. Uh, we'll go over Clarice. Uh, please visit us at deadtalklive.com. Uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, Twitter. You can find us anywhere. Just look for Dead Talk Live. Visit our news site at deadtalknews.com. You guys have been amazing as always. Uh, like I said, I will be back on the again. I will be back on the air again tomorrow night, and Monday. Don't forget, we are going to go over and break down episode seventeen of The Walking Dead. Tuesday, we have special guest Sean Roberts. For more information, please visit our website. Till tomorrow, guys. Stay safe. Stay walking. Good night.